Thank you very much indeed. Um, just, I suppose, if you are perhaps here for the first or second time, uh, just to let you know, the series City on a Hill is all really built around the teaching of the Bible with one particular thought in mind, which is that a healthy church is like a city on a hill. It shines out the love of God to people who need to see it and need to know it. A healthy church is a church that loves God, where the people love each other, and we love the people who don't yet know Jesus. And so the whole series is exploring that idea, and I'm going to continue it today. And sort of, I'm going to pick up something which I started a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Ephesians chapter 2. And we looked at this strange metaphor that the Bible uses. That God's people, the church, is like a temple, but instead of being built up architecturally out of bricks or lumps of stone, it's built up out of people. And we looked at this whole idea that Christians in a church is a temple built together and actually corporately together. We're a temple where God lives and where God's presence is. And we spent quite a bit of time looking at that and contrasting it with the dominant worldview in 21st century Western culture, which is an extreme version of individualism, which is really where it's me right at the center of my thinking and understanding of the world instead of us, a kind of group identity. We contrasted, uh, if you like, the two images of a lone wolf that just travels around on its own, doing its own thing, making decisions for itself, my feelings, my identity, my destiny, my life, my choice, with a wolf pack, which is much more geared towards what's best for all of us. And actually, I get my security and my identity from being part of something. And how actually our, our culture that most of us are from and that we live in here cuts strongly away from this group identity. Whereas actually, if we're going to be faithful to the teachings of the Bible, we need to understand that group identity, belonging to God's people as part of this temple built up out of individual people, is really, really important. I'm going to continue with the same metaphor today, the temple built up out of people as if somehow you know, we, we can we put us all together and we produce this huge, beautiful cathedral to God made up of living people. We're going to continue that metaphor and we're going to look in particular at what it means for how we live our daily lives, in particular when we're not here on Sunday. Last time we talked a lot about worshipping together in the presence of God with us and that was you know, beautifully demonstrated this morning, amazing time of worship, so great to hear you know, scripture read and sung and prayed and, and God just kind of changing, if you like, the, the, the emphasis and the direction of where we were going in worship through people's contributions. But this week, having talked before about worship, we're going to talk about the rest of the week when we're not here together and how the idea of being a holy temple affects that. Ready? Okay. We're going to read uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10 under the title, We Are a Temple, and we're going to talk particularly about Jesus-shaped lives. Let me just read you the passage. As you come to him, this is speaking about Jesus, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there it is again, the the metaphor, being built into a spiritual house. You could translate the same word, a spiritual temple. That's the word that's often used uh, in in the original language for, for temple. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, which is 
way of speaking of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're going to talk, first of all, about Jesus as the living stone. Verse 4, it said right there, as you come to him, the living stone. We've got to be honest at the start, that's an odd analogy to draw, isn't it? It's, a, it's, it's, you know, we think of Jesus in other places, the Lamb of God, okay, that kind of works. The Lion of a, the tribe of Judah, the living stone is a very kind of odd way to talk about him. It comes from these enigmatic lines from the Old Testament that we quoted in verses uh, 6 uh, down to 8. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And then a bit later on, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble. And a rock that makes them fall. It's picturing Jesus in a paradoxical way as both a completely perfect example of a stone, a block, to start building this temple with. And yet at the same time as being a perfect stone, he's a very, very problematic stone. It's getting us ready for this idea of the living temple built up of individual lives. And so it's starting with Jesus as the stone who is alive, the stone that is talked about in these strange lines from the Old Testament. And we see Jesus on the one hand as a perfect stone. When we look at the New Testament accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, he's, uh, we see him very much as the Son of God, perfect, pure, sinless, holy, come down to live amongst us, to rescue us, to reconnect us with God. The metaphor, if you like, that what he's going for, he's saying, you're on, the, you're on the building site, you're going to construct this beautiful, incredible temple, and here is the stone that is the stone of stones. It's just exactly perfectly cut and smooth you look at it it's flawless there's no little weird kind of lumps of another rock sticking out to spoil it you touch the surface and it's almost like wow that's smoother than marble that's incredible the corners are exact and you look as close as you can with this kind of jeweler's little eyepiece you just can't see a flaw in it this is perfect this is beautiful if i'm building anything this is the stone that i'm going to use that's the idea that we have by jesus as this perfect living stone he's come down and he's flawless and he's the one that we're going to build this temple around when we talk about jesus as perfect the new testament often talks about him as holy it's a word that we saw several times in the passage. To understand what holy means, we need both sides of it. Most Christians are kind of slightly lopsided when they think about holiness. We talk about holy, they think, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's away from sin. It's not doing anything wrong. And that is true. The, the root behind the, the, the original word that we translate holy from the Hebrew means to be set apart. And it does mean to be set apart from sin. 
It means if these are all the wrong things, I'm going to set apart over here to be holy. But it also means not just set apart from sin. It means to be set apart for God. So Jesus being holy and perfect wasn't just he never did anything wrong, although he didn't. He was the only one of us who's ever lived without flaws and faults and failings. Yet he was also set apart for God to wholeheartedly fulfill his mission, to reconnect us to God and actually to reconnect us to each other in part of God's people, the church. It says this in verse 6, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He's this perfect stone able to reconnect us with God in a way that we will never before God be ashamed again, despite the fact we've got everything to feel shame about. We will never be condemned by God, despite the fact we've done so much that makes us blameworthy before God. We will never be rejected by God, despite the fact there's nothing in us that makes us acceptable. When you put your faith in Jesus, the perfect flawless living stone we become incredibly acceptable to god because of him it's about trusting in him not not earning our own goodness before god it's trusting in jesus the perfect stone it's not talking about never be put to shame in front of people unfortunately it's one of those christians are tempted sometimes to kind of find verses quote them out of context and desperately wonder why they're not working i uh, i sat down on a bus recently Uh, and missed the seat and went right down. Everybody laughed at me. wasn't quoting this. Never be put to shame. doesn't mean we're never going to be embarrassed in front of people. Never actually means we're not going to be deeply ashamed of our behavior in front of other people. I wasn't ashamed of falling down on the bus. To make it seem any better, I was actually getting up to give my seat to this old lady. And, and she was like, no, 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 I don't, I don't need that. So I went to sit back down on it. But it was one of those, like... Yeah, those ones. Somebody had flipped up behind me and I was going down. But that's not what he's talking about. We will be ashamed. We will be embarrassed. We are going to mess up. Actually, we've got plenty of stuff in our lives that we're not really proud of. The beauty of the living stone, this perfect, flawless, perfectly, is that we'll never be ashamed before God in Jesus because he accepts us on the basis of the stone. A Christian, to become a Christian, is this beautiful experience of finding where you fit. It's, it's, it's like a, to just shift analogies for a minute, it's like a jigsaw piece. And you, and you spend your life looking at yourself thinking, why have I got these kind of odd lumpy bits sticking out of me and these funny little kind of bits in me? I don't seem to fit up against anything. I'll never find my place. What's, what, what am I doing here in life? Becoming a Christian is like actually finding a right I fit perfectly into my relationship with God. This is why I'm this way, because I'm designed to fit just here in life, in God, in a family of God's people. It's that beautiful sense of, right, this is what I exist for. This is what my life is here for. And that's what Jesus offers us as the perfect living stone. But also Jesus is a problematic stone. It doesn't just portray him as this perfect thing. You'd think, well, this is, this is amazing. It, actually, it says the stone the builders have rejected. People stumble and fall over this living stone. He's, he's not as popular as you would think. It's just be brilliant. Everyone should love this. 
And yet back then, 2,000 years ago, verse 4 tells us he was rejected by humans. Huge crowds flocked to see Jesus. They loved what he had to say, but they turned away when he put the challenge on them. Jesus had disciples who traveled closely with him. And yet in his darkest hour, when he was arrested, the night before he was executed, they scattered and deserted. Jesus found himself utterly alone, utterly rejected, utterly despised and scorned and put to shame before people as he hung dying on the cross in our place. Why did they crucify the living stone? Why did they crucify this perfect, flawless man? It doesn't make any sense. Even the leaders, the religious leaders, the people who should have known best, says the stone the builders rejected. It's like they turned up on site and there was this incredible, beautiful, perfect, flawless, millimeter precise, polished stone. And the builders come in, the religious leaders, and we don't want that. That's no good. That won't, that won't work for us. Get that out of here. Get me something else. Nail him up on a tree. Were they blind? Were they stupid? Well, let's reserve judgment on that. Because we need to face the question that actually is here. Jesus is problematic today as well. It's not just, weren't they stupid back then? Jesus is a big problem for people today. He may be a problem for you. You may be here. You're not perhaps identifying yourself as a Christian, not perhaps you know, fully thinking you're someone of faith. Jesus brings problems. How do we know he really existed? Really, was he the son of God? I mean, I can understand a, a, a good man, but son of God, is that a bit far? How do, that's a big claim. How do I know that's true? Rising from the dead, you say. Doesn't science prohibit that? How do we fit that in with our current medical knowledge? What about Jesus' moral teachings? That sometimes chafe a little. That sometimes are in tension with what people in the culture around us believe. If you're not a Christian, one of the things that may hold you back from putting faith in Jesus is thinking, actually, Jesus says some pretty harsh things that actually I don't really see what's wrong with them. Why should Jesus have anything to say about that? What about other faiths and other belief systems? You see, Jesus is a problematic stone. He comes with these questions. And we need to be people of intellectual integrity. We need to be able to look at these and investigate. And one of the beautiful things about Christianity is because it's a faith based on real historical events is we can investigate. We can ask questions. We can challenge. And there's all sorts of ways as a church we offer to do this. We run Alpha courses where you can really look closely at it. Sunday mornings are a place where we explore, not just for believers, but also for people who are interested or curious about faith. To find out, you can have conversations. We've got books we can read. We've got a website full of talks. Becoming a Christian is not throwing your brain away. It's actually we can look at these questions and examine them. But often, and perhaps even sometimes after we've got to the end of these intellectual questions, there's a deeper problem with Jesus as the living stone. And the deeper problem with Jesus as the living stone is sometimes that we don't actually want a rock of salvation. We want a malleable Messiah. We want a putty Jesus that we can mold into the shape that suits us best. That when Jesus disagrees with our beliefs or our opinions or our sense of morality or our understanding of the world or our sense of identity, we want to be able to, just like the people in Jesus' day, squeeze him into a shape that fits us. The real problem with Jesus is that he just won't do that. He's this solid, 
stone, perfectly cut, perfectly smooth, flawless block. Imagine trying to shape that with your, it's just, it doesn't work. And this is actually the deepest level, the problem that we have with Jesus, particularly people who are exploring faith. So it comes to a point, and I've seen this over and over again, particularly on Alpha courses and things, where people get to a point of saying, and I, I, if I had a pound for every time I said this to me, I'd have many pounds. People have said, yeah, yeah I'm willing, I can see Jesus existed. I can see the Bible is a reliable account of Jesus. Got that. I'm, yeah, I, from what, I can see that rising from the dead is the most logical and obvious explanation for what happened to him. I get all of that. But if I follow Jesus, my life's going to have to change, isn't it? And they put it in all sorts of different ways. And often they'll tell me the specific area in which it's going to have to change. Because we can't mold Jesus like a piece of putty into the shape that we want. We walk away from him. Those religious leaders, the builders, were they blind? Were they stupid? I think they were just like you and me. We find it hard to think, actually, Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the standard and the definition. And actually, it's me who's got to change, not him. And so people stumble and people trip. Because actually, Jesus says, you need to change. However, there's some very good news. That'd be a bad message if it finished there, wouldn't it? Unlucky, everybody. You need to change. Jesus ain't changing. Happy days. The good news is, as well as Jesus being this perfect living stone, when we put our faith in Jesus, we become living stones. We're back to the temple uh, analogy again of a temple built up together of lots and lots of people. The living stone Jesus, when we put our faith in him, makes us into living stones as well. It says in verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. When we put our faith in Jesus, we become qualified to become part of the temple. Think of us, uh, you know, our natural state is we're just a lump of rock. Not even really vaguely rectangular, just some kind of boulder somewhere. Kind of mixed, kind of weird combinations of rock and there's this like moss growing on us and floors and cracks and fault lines and bits flaking off. You think, that is not impressive. If I'm, you could build a dry stone wall out of it, but you're not going to build a temple out of it, are you? That's, gotta, that's just got to be shaped. It's just so much. The good news, the gospel, the message for Jesus is he doesn't speak to big kind of lumpy, boulder, weird-shaped rocks and say, smarten yourselves up and when you're good enough, you can be part of the temple. Imagine a rock trying to sort of sharpen it, smooth itself out. It doesn't even work, does it? You can't even move. The best you're going to do is just start rolling down a hill and hope that that bashes all the the kind of rough edges off you. That's just not going to work. In the same way, Jesus doesn't come as this perfect precise, flawless, living stone and say, become just like me. And when you're good enough, you too can be part of the temple. That's why it says the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. We get qualified to be part of this beautiful temple of God's people because Jesus is perfect, not because we're perfect. We put our faith in Jesus. Becoming a Christian is putting your faith in Jesus and being accepted because he is good enough. And God says, Jesus is good enough. He wants you part of the temple. Come on. Moss, flaws, cracks, rough edges, wrong shape, you can be part of the temple. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what I love about being a Christian. I just love that there's no sense of make yourself good enough and God might accept you. God accepts me just as I am, flaws and all. 
Is that good news? That's the gospel. But, given that, we get qualified because Jesus is perfect. We then need to look at becoming Jesus-shaped ourselves. It's not, an, it's not an end product. God doesn't take this rough, kind of misshapen, flawed, cracked, crumbling boulder and just say, that can be part of the temple. There, plonk it in. Job done. Becoming a Christian is not, I automatically get qualified, therefore I can forget about everything for the rest of my life and do whatever I like. Uh, becoming a Christian is saying, I'm part of the temple. I've become connected to Jesus. I've put my trust in him. I'm therefore going to live as who I am. And if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are now a living stone being built together into this holy temple. Therefore, it makes sense to live that out, to live as a holy stone, a living stone as part of this holy temple. We're not finished yet, are we? It's not that we become a Christian and kind of in taking us from our pre-Christian state to now we're a Christian, suddenly I go from this rough, misshapen, lumpy, jaggedy boulder to suddenly, hey, and now look, I'm wonderful and perfect. It doesn't happen. We're still a work in progress. Miraculously and beautifully when you become a Christian, certain you know, sins and character flaws do just seem to drop away. They're different for different people. But there's other areas we have to work on. And we keep fighting against and we keep getting tempted and falling in all sorts of ways and having to just work at it. But becoming a Christian is being a rough rock that is undergoing a lifelong process of shaping, of just cutting off the rough edges, of just bringing some definition to the lines, of sorting out the flaws, of smoothing it. To become a Christian is to become Jesus-shaped. That's what it means by he's the cornerstone. The cornerstone of the temple is the first one that you lay. It's like, let's put this here, and this stone is the one that gives the alignment and the form and the shape to the rest of the building. When I want to know where to put the other ones, I use the cornerstone to kind of, right, that one goes there, so I'm going to put that here, that fits. To become part of Jesus' temple is to be built around his design, is to have our lives shaped by the living stone, as we are living stones in his temple. The whole Christian journey is a journey of becoming more and more Jesus-shaped. It's a, it's a process of having our lives becoming more and more like him, which means loving God and loving other people more and more and more and more. If, hypothetically, we took a big lump of stone and plonked it around the temple, and it was never shaped... And it was never cut, and it was never smoothed, and it was never polished. After a long time, what would you end up thinking? It's not really part of the temple, is it? It just happens to be hanging around a load of other stones. In the same way, as our lives gradually become more Jesus-shaped, it's evidence that we're part of God's people. And if, year after year after year, nothing's really changing... We got a question, have I really come to Jesus after at all? Or have I just come to a little putty version of Jesus that I can mould and he doesn't change me? I want to talk a bit more about what Jesus shape means. And I want to come back to this idea of holy, okay? So we're happy with the principle, yeah? Jesus, the living stone, he's perfect, he's flawless, he's precise. We are living stones, we're part of the temple, but we are being shaped day by day, to become more like Jesus. We also need to understand that shaping us to be more like Jesus is not just about love God, love people, do what I like. It's about becoming holy. It says in verse 9, you are a holy priest, a holy nation. Verse 5, you're a holy priesthood. 
And holy, we saw before, means set apart from sin, different from everything that's wrong, and set apart for God on a mission. So as we live holy, God-centered lives, as we have our lives shaped like these stones more and more into an appropriate shape, a a good shape for the temple, we set ourselves apart as Christians from things that are wrong, and we set ourselves apart for God on a mission. It means to be, to be holy in this way means more love, means more grace, means more kindness. It means being readier to share our faith. It means quicker to pray. It means looking for the opportunities. How can I tell some other people about Jesus and what he's done for me? It means more patient, more kind, more faithful, more reliable, more honest. It means less crudity. It means less rudeness. It means less selfishness. It means less lust. It means less envy. It means less self-centered withdrawing away from people because it's easier to stay away from them. It means much less, I'm just going to have my own little holy thing here. To be holy means to be thoroughly engaged in a culture that doesn't recognize Jesus and yet to remain pure and blameless in it. Does that sound easy? It isn't that easy, is it? It sounds easy when you first become a Christian. You think, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And then you discover, it's hard. It's hard. Because actually, there's a whole lot of, despite becoming a Christian, there's a whole lot of stuff in me that still wants to be selfish and and envy and proud and and lustful and, and ungrateful and spiteful and gossipy and crude and rude and immoral. It's a difficult business. So again, seems like it's suddenly we've gone back to bad news again. Good news. Jesus qualifies us to be in the temple. Phew, what a relief. Bad news. All oh, right, now I've got to become holy so it's appropriate to fit in the temple. We don't want to mess the temple up, do we? You know, you imagine, you know, jump back to Israel in, you know, let's say eight, 900 BC. Got this beautiful temple in Israel. You don't want to be the guy who's kind of click, mucking out the stables and shoving it in the, in the temple. You don't want to be someone who's, you know, you, 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 you're the lady who's clearing out everything at home. You sweep it all up into a big black bag and chuck it in the temple. You wouldn't want to be that, would you? You wouldn't want to be caught on CCTV being that anyway, would you? Who's this one's chucking rubbish in the temple? Freeze frame. Oh, it's you. And yet we do that when we're Christians, when we don't live holy lives, when we think it doesn't matter, it's just me. No one's watching. No one's going to know. It doesn't matter. When we sin, we pollute the temple. When we allow division between us, bad feeling, bad attitudes between us and other believers, it's like we're putting, we're damaging the temple. You know, we're the idiot kind of chiseling our name in it. Or just hacking a bit off to take home and use. Why would we want to do that? There was just such a beautiful thing at the prayer meeting. For those of you that were lucky enough to be there, it was just this amazing moment where Leanne felt, you know, I think God's saying, let's join hands and just, he's going to pour kind of a love for each other out there. And, and normally if you're like me and you kind of get a bit awkward about things like that, you kind of think, oh, this is going to be a bit creepy and a bit weird. That was brilliant. It was so good. It was like everyone there, we just stood in a massive circle holding hands as a symbol of God's joined us together in a holy temple. And then spontaneously people just pray and things, God, we want this and make us like this. And we do this. I was talking to several people afterwards who just saying, do you know, I was looking around thinking, I just love these people so much. There's no one here that I just don't have an open heart towards. Who'd want to be the guy who breaks the circle? Who'd, who'd want to be the woman who just pulls the hand away and just cracks the stones? We want to be holy, but it's not bad news. 
Because it sounds like, oh, more pressure. What have I got to do? The good news is God calls us to become Jesus-shaped together. And this really is the big point I've been building up to in the whole thing. The big point is this. Church is vital in the process of becoming Jesus-shaped. I'll put it even stronger. I think it's basically impossible to become really Jesus-shaped and holy in your life without being part of a local church. Strong words, but I think it's true. Western 21st century individualism says basically this. You want to be holy? Okay, it's all about me and God, my relationship to Jesus. How do I get holy? Well, I'll I'll read the Bible and I'll pray and I'll study and I'll think about myself. All of those are good things. Those are things that I try and do every day and I recommend you do every day. But Western 21st century individualism says, here's how I'm going to be holy. I'm going to read the Bible, find out how I should live. Then I'm going to pray and ask God to make me like it. And then I'm going to go out and hopefully I'll do it. Everybody else who's not infected with Western 21st century individualism says, what are you doing? You're supposed to be part of a holy people. It's a a community together that helps make us Jesus-shaped. What are you trying to do? Do it on your own. It doesn't make any sense. I think you need to be part of a church to grow and mature in Christ because we need to shape each other. That's why it says we are being built together into this temple. It's, it's God, God, God's not saying, let's have a massive, massive kind of field full of individual, beautifully cut, perfect blocks. There, 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 there. He's building us together. And actually part of the process of building us together is what allows us to become more Jesus-shaped and to change. His goal is a holy people. A little, I don't want you to put your hands up, but did you clock? They're, they're all collective nouns about being holy. A holy priesthood, a holy nation. It's not just God wants you to be a holy person, although he does. He wants us together to be holy. I'll give you two reasons why I think it's basically impossible to really become Jesus-shaped without being part of a church. First one is this. If I take one stone on its own, I've found a stone, I've shaped it a bit, and I plonk it down and have a look at it, I think, that looks pretty good. Yeah, that, that looks, yes, approximately cuboid shaped. I've eliminated the worst problems of it. That's nice. That's, that's, yeah, fit for the temple. No problem. Everybody's happy. As soon as I put it next to another stone and try to fit it into this temple wall that I'm building, I discover, oh, it's not as, it's not as straight as I thought. Actually, when I put it, oh, it's actually wonky. They don't join, they don't join properly like that because I've cut it wrong. Oh, right, I'll, I'll turn it up the other way. Now it doesn't join together because the other bit's sticking out. I'll turn it around. Oh, there's a big lump sticking out there. Actually, when I put them together, I discover both of them. I wanted a nice smooth join, and I've got a kind of wobbly line. It doesn't work. I put it next to, or I'll take a better stone that I've got and put it next to that. Now, that one looks really good, really smooth. Actually, by comparison, this one looks terrible. I thought it was really good when I did it, but now it looks bad. If you just try and live your life and think, I'm going to be Jesus-shaped and holy, on your own, away from everybody else who's Jesus-shaped, you look at yourself and you think, yeah, that's good. I'm doing well. We need to come up against other people to realize, oh, right. I thought I was quite patient, but compared to you, I see I'm really impatient. Oh, right, I get it now. I I thought I was really loving, but now compared to you, I realize 
actually, I'm really hard-hearted towards people. Oh, I thought I was really good at serving other people. But now when I look at you and the way you behave, I realize, actually, I'm quite lazy. When we, come, when we come together, when we have other people around us, it helps change us. It, it, it also allows us to look more closely, doesn't it? If I, it oh, no, I'll say that in a different way for all sorts of reasons. When I look at myself compared to someone else, often... I I can see the flaws in myself. That's the idea of putting stones next to each other. But it's also important to actually look close up, isn't it? If I take my stone and plonk it 300 yards down the road and then look at it, I'm not going to see any flaws at all, am I? We need people who are close to us who can see our flaws. We need people close to us who can see, you, you think you're really generous, but I think you're stingy. It's quite rude. But unless you're close up to people, you can see it. That's why you need to be part of a church, not even just attending a church. You need to be part of a church where people know you close up. That's why our small groups are so important. They're our main means of of discipling and pastoral care and shaping us like Jesus because it gets you a little bit closer up. You look at people on a Sunday morning. I can look great on a Sunday morning if I try. Week after week, meet with me in small group. You'll discover I'm not quite as Jesus-shaped as I thought I was. We're going to do it. There's a, there's, a, there's a fairly significant kind of upgrade of our small group system coming up. I'm going to tell you more about it in Sunday in two weeks' time. But they are such a useful tool in, in, in helping us to be Jesus-shaped. They're so useful for that. If you really want someone to kind of help shape you in Jesus, you need someone really close up. And you can't do that if you're not part of a church with a whole load of people around you. When was the last time you asked someone and said, In what ways do you think I need to be more Jesus-shaped? Or equivalent question. When was the last time you said to someone, in what ways do you think I'm not very holy? When was the last time you asked someone that? Who are you going to ask? I mean, ask a friend. That's a start. Sometimes a little bit too nice. Ask someone in your small group who knows you. Ask your small group leader. Ask one of the elders. If you're really brave and you're married, ask your spouse. Second reason I think it's really important is kind of following on from that. We can actually see each other's problems, can't we? I think I look fairly Jesus-shaped in certain ways, but you look at me and you say, no, you're not Jesus-shaped at all in that way. That's the, that's the value in asking you and saying, how can I change? If I, if I can spend ages praying and reflecting and reading the Bible and saying, God, show me any hidden faults within me. Is there anything displeasing in me? What's that you say? No. I'm okay? Great. I can spend months trying to discover my hidden flaws. Whereas if I ask you, you say, yeah, you're a bit rude. <laughs> you, you, you're quite lazy. You're a bit disparaging about certain sorts of people, aren't you? You're a bit proud, a bit full of yourself. I don't think you do this very well. Why don't we just save a load of time and ask people? Here's my one little challenge for you. Ask someone. But I think here at King's Church, generally speaking, we're a bit nice. I think we're a little bit too nice. So I can imagine the conversation to go like this. Al, 
just I'd like you to tell me any way you think I could be more Jesus-shaped. Where do you think I'm lacking in holiness a little bit? Oh, I wouldn't. I just think you're doing really well. I really just want to, not because it's out, just because he's one of us. I just want to encourage you. You're doing really well. That's great. Thanks for encouraging me. Is there any way I could be more Jesus-shaped? Well, you could, you know, just wouldn't it be great if we prayed a bit more? Yes, that's a nice general one. Anything else? Just love one another more? Yes, I'll definitely love one another more. Often, often, that's just like getting a bit of sandpaper and doing that. What you sometimes need is someone to get a chisel. Say to you, you tell dirty jokes, bang. You drink too much, bang. You're rude about your wife, bang. I think you look down on people of a certain type, bang. A bit judgmental, bang. You're stingy with your money, bang. It's not as nice, is it, being whacked by a chisel? But if you want to be Jesus-shaped, it's a lot more effective than being wiped with a chamois leather. I think we're a bit too nice sometimes. I think we've got to have that kind of depth of love for one another that we're prepared to be honest with one another and say, you use quite bad language, don't you? Why are you always running people down behind their back? That's not holy. That's not Jesus-shaped. I think also, biblically, there is a case for not just waiting to be asked. The Bible talks in several places in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 18, and also I think it's Matthew 7, about actually if you see a, a, a brother, another stone in the temple sinning, go to them and show them their fault. Not just, oh, I'll pray for them that God will show it to them. Not, I'll go and tell Rich and maybe he'll go and tell them. But biblically, I go up to them and say, listen, I just think, I don't mean this the wrong way, but I've just noticed you do this. I think you'd be more Jesus-shaped if you didn't do it. When was the last time you did that to anybody? When was the last time anybody did it to you? No one loves it. No one feels great. Can I just have a quick word? Uh Uh-oh. But it's really helpful. Some of the big kind of more Jesus-shapedness aspects of my life is when people have said things like that to me. We're a bit too nice sometimes, aren't we? I don't really want to upset them. Well, we want to be Jesus-shaped, whether it's upsetting or not. And obviously you do it nicely. You're You're not a sin inspector, are you? You're not, you know, you're not got a massive clipboard with a lid. I'm going to write down everybody's name in the church, and I'm going to find something wrong with everyone and go around finding faults. You, 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 you. Got an extra page for you. I'm not, it's not. We do it lovingly. We do it lovingly. And, but I think it's important to do. We need to talk about planks and specks a little bit, because I think sometimes Christians, as well as being too nice or too cowardly, sometimes we don't do it, not because we're trying to be loving. We're just a bit frightened of confronting people. We need to do it. It's loving to confront people. So I think you need to just look at this area here. Sometimes we don't do it. Well, it's none of my business, really, what you do. Yes, it is. We're in the same temple. We're part of the same temple together. I don't, I'm working hard to be Jesus-shaped in the temple here. I don't want some kind of joker next to me just flinging bin bags in and chipping bits off. It is my business how you live, and it is your business how I live. But we shouldn't be put off in Matthew 7. Hang on, I've written it down somewhere. Yeah, listen to this. Matthew chapter 7. This is the classic plank in the eye one. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so often Christians use that, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to, you know, I'm, who am I to say you've got a speck in your eye? It doesn't say 
don't take the speck out of your brother's eye, does it? It just says don't be a hypocrite. Take the plank out of your eye and then you'll be able to see clearly to do it. He's expecting us to say to him, I think you've got a little speck in your eye. I think you're not quite Jesus-shaped in this way. He's just expecting us to change our lives as well before we do it. Second little challenge. Maybe there's someone in love that you need to speak to and say, I just... I think you need to be a little bit more Jesus-shaped like this. It's loving. Church is far from perfect. Because it's you and me, that's obvious. We're all imperfect stones, so the church is going to be imperfect. But not even the people in it. The way we do things is imperfect. We're going to make some wrong decisions. We're going to do some things badly from time to time. We're going to, you know, it's it's just, church is not perfect. We know that. But what I'm not, I mean... It's the raw material of grace, isn't it? The church, it's, it's the thing that, which God shows his grace, the fact that we're not perfect and he accepts us. There isn't a perfect church. Every church is imperfect. It's not about, Christians sometimes get the wrong idea and start thinking, I've got to find the best church. I've got to find the, the you know, all right, I know there's no perfect church. If there is a perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. It's a truism, but it is, it, it, but it's true. You will ruin it because you're not perfect. But it's not about, can I find the best church or the most perfect church? It's not about that. Every church is imperfect, but wonderful. It's like your kids. You love them to bits, but they're not that great. They do things that wind you up and that, you know, get things wrong. No, no sensible parent thinks their kids are perfect or even close to perfect, but they love them. It's the same with the church. But here's the real twist, if you like. It's the imperfections in the church that help us become most Jesus-shaped. It's the imperfections in the church that help us become most Jesus-shaped. The myth is, I find a really, really almost perfect church and I will really flourish and grow there as a Christian. Great, probably true. But the beauty is, when you're in a flawed church, people do things wrong. People let you down. People hurt you. Sometimes things are done badly. Sometimes things are boring and dull. Sometimes the leaders make the wrong decisions. Sometimes the whole direction's a bit crackers. Sometimes you look and you think, there's so many things here I can criticize. Brilliant. Because now you're forced to make a choice. Are you going to show grace? Or are you going to kind of grumble and moan? Are you going to love the people in the church that hurt you? Or are you going to leave and find a church with nicer people? It's the imperfections themselves as we get two rough stones that grind against each other, that really allow us to become Jesus-shaped and holy. If you were so perfect that you just never rubbed anybody up the wrong way, never let anybody know did anything wrong, it'd be nice and easy living around someone like that. But it doesn't force me to confront my own unforgiveness doesn't force me to confront my own judgmentalism. doesn't force me to confront my own sense of I'm going to pull away from you to defend myself from being let down. The beauty of being in a church full of imperfect people, rough stones, is we have to choose. I'm still going to love them. On, on, on Wednesday night, when we're holding hands and looking around at like 40 or 50 people in the room, I was not looking thinking, these people are flawless. Therefore, I'm going to love them forever. I looked around, thought, we're all flawed, myself included. That's the beauty of it, isn't it? 
That's how we become more Christ-like. Because what did Jesus do? He loved us when we were unlovely. He opened his heart to us when we closed our hearts to him. He gave his life for us when we wouldn't give him the time of day. The beauty of an imperfect church is it allows us to choose godliness and Jesus' shapeness every time. Amen? Last thing. This is a conclusion more than anything else. Jesus is the living stone. He's perfect. He's, he's qualified us to be in the temple. And he's gradually shaping us through our own and other people's imperfections to be holy and Jesus-shaped. There are many more living stones that Jesus wants for his temple. It's, it's like not even half done. It's not, it's not ready yet. There's so many other people out there who need to hear this amazing message that we can be accepted and qualified by Jesus because of what he's done. Verse 9 says, All of these things are happening, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you're a people. Once you'd not received mercy, now you'd receive mercy. People around us need to know that. They need to know that Jesus is calling us into this wonderful light. They need to know that once we were just individuals kind of lost adrift on the ocean, Jesus gathers us in, he rescues us, he makes us part of his people. And as we live as this holy temple, this beautiful, flawed, but loving community, it's a city on a hill. It shines the light out to people. It shows people there is hope that you can be accepted despite your flaws. There is hope that you can belong despite the fact you've got all sorts of character traits that push people away from you. People are looking to belong. I think there's something instinctive about that in us. Despite the fact that we're immersed in this extreme individualism and we just have been trained to think me, 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 me. People want to belong. That's why people affiliate with sports teams. It's why people kind of like to join societies and things. It's like it's why in inner cities why people join gangs. It's what some people get from being part of the military. It's what some people get from being part of a political party or a movement or a protest organization. They've all got other reasons behind them. But often it's the drive to belong. People want to belong. As we live as a beautiful community of God's flawed but loving Jesus-shaped people, it's a city on a hill. It's light in darkness. It says you too can belong to this. You don't have to be good enough to belong. You don't have to be superb. You don't even have to agree. You can come and be part of us. It's a city on a hill. People are looking for authenticity and things genuine. I think most people are sick of shallow surface spirituality. They're looking for something deeper, aren't they? I've known over my years as a Christian several people who have taken the um, wrong approach that I'm going to show that as a Christian I'm just like you and it will blow their minds to see me drinking and smoking and cursing down the pub and they'll think, wow, he's just like me. I better become a Christian as well. All it says is, there's no gospel. All it says is, I'm no different to you. I'm not offering you anything. Hey, why not become a Christian? It won't change your life one bit. Then why bother? People need to see something genuine. People need to see the gospel going deep into our lives and changing us. That's why they need to see us living holy, joyful, loving, Jesus-shaped lives. It says to them, this is real. This is worth changing for. This can change you. That's a city on a hill, isn't it? 
We're called to be sheepdogs, not sheep. We're called to be different. We're called to be a people who not only declare the praises of God, but demonstrate it in the way we love one another and live Jesus-shaped lives. Amen? Amen. Can we pray for a moment? It'd be great if you just want to open your heart to God. First of all, I'd like just to give you an opportunity. If you've not, if you've never completely, fully committed your life to Jesus, to being a Christian, to being on this life-changing, shaping journey, I'll give you an opportunity right now to become a Christian. Or if you've been a, a Christian but you've kind of drifted away from it, it's the same thing, an opportunity to recommit to Jesus. I'm going to pray a prayer and I'd like you to just pray it after me in, in, your, in your mind, in your heart. Jesus, I want to thank you that you love me. I want to thank you that you are perfect. I want to thank you that in trusting you, I will never be put to shame before God. Jesus, I turn away from sin. I give you my whole life. I commit to being part of your people. And I commit to having my life shaped more like you for the rest of my life. Amen. I'd also like to give you a chance to respond if you are a Christian. But you know there's a specific holiness issue for you. It may be tiny. Maybe just a real little thing you think, is that worth bothering with? It may be huge. Maybe an area you think, this, I'm never going to change this. This is too, too big, too serious. Whatever it is for you, I'm going to give you an opportunity now to respond to God as well. And I'd like you to just to pray this in your heart after me. Jesus, I'm sorry for not changing in this area of my life. I want to be more holy and more Jesus-shaped. I confess my sin. Please forgive me. And I commit myself to changing in this area. By your Holy Spirit, please help me to change. Amen. If you've prayed a prayer to give your life to Jesus, Al or I would love to just talk with you at the end. If you've prayed a prayer for, for change in an area of your life, it would be great for you to share that with someone. I'd just like to say a prayer for all of us and then we're going to finish. Jesus, I'm so grateful it's about you, not me. I'm so grateful you've done everything 
for me. Help us all in this room to respond to what you've done and to live holy, loving, God-centered lives as part of your people. Amen.